This is a CBC podcast. This is my producer Amanda's dog, Truffles. As you can hear, she's whining about something. Okay, well, now she's barking about something. But what really is she saying? I just kind of wonder, like, will I ever really know? Can we ever learn her language and just have a full-on bark conversation? Will I ever know if she's like, Oh my god, help, I'm trapped in a dog's body! Or if Truffles is just screaming for the sake of screaming. I know there have been a whole bunch of different times that humans have been able to teach animals how to communicate with us. Like, there's that orangutan, Tilda, that researchers taught how to mimic sounds. Like this. And then there was Coco, the gorilla, who actually learned sign language. She even talked to Robin Williams. I recently had a mind-altering experience communicating with a gorilla. Her name is Coco. Oh, and then there was Alex the parrot, who did a step up from the both of them and could actually speak English. Like, full-on language here, guys. Alex, how many? Two. That's right. You want some water? All right. He had a vocabulary of over 100 words and was the first and only non-human animal to have ever asked a question. What this shows us is that he really understands what those questions mean. But, you know, that's not really the same as us learning their languages. You know, they're learning ours. Do they even have languages that we could speak to them in? And if they do, would we be able to learn it? Can we ever really know what animals are saying to each other? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are just so many good questions out there that you really, really need to have answered. Why is space so dark? How do songs get stuck in your head? What is the science of bullying? What is deja vu? When the dinosaurs died, how did some other animals survive? And what are animals saying to each other? For those that are new to this show, this is my little brother, Kian. Hello, Romigo. And I know this is going to sound strange, but he honestly thinks that he can talk to ducks. I am the duck lord. Kian, explain yourself. Okay, I am the duck lord. All ducks will bow down before me, just joking, because I'm not cruel and I let the ducks have their freedom. So I'm just like... And then they're like, and then I get food and I feed them and they're like, which is duck for thank you so much, you're great. And they're like, which means we should be friends. And they're like, catch you later. So Kian, do you think these ducks have like something that's like a language? Yeah, like I summon them. They're like pretty far away, so I go, and they actually come. Now, my mother actually backs Kian up on this. Yeah, we see them fly in over the village and they fly in over the house. Kian calls them, he stands on the deck and calls them and they fly in over the top of the houses and come in for landing on the river and and then just kind of swim up the river and jump up and Kian's there with his 
cucumbers and corn and all the things that you feed ducks and they and just they and they just they love the cucumbers they do I have to be real, not a big believer. Kind of skeptical of this whole scheme. But I'm not a pessimist. I'm a scientist. So I really just think that Ken has trained them because every time he quacks, he always gives them food. So I think the ducks have just learned that quacking from loud, annoying brothers means food. So every time he quacks, they come to him for food. But I thought I'd run this theory by a fellow scientist, just to be sure. Well, I haven't observed your brother's behavior with ducks. But if he has gotten them conditioned by food to whenever he arrives, they may be attracted to him by the food. Of course, if he spends time observing their behavior, he might have some insight into how the ducks behave but I'd have to watch him to know for sure. This is Kathleen Dudzinski. She's the director of the Dolphin Communication Project. She spent the last 30 years studying dolphins and the way that they communicate. And she says that when it comes to learning what any animals are saying to each other, the key is observation. You have to watch what they do. And so you want to look at what they do maybe what they say in terms of verbal signals with one another, but also what the context is. So let me ask you this. If you see a mother and her child walking down a sidewalk and they suddenly grab hands, why do you think they might have grabbed hands? Safety, maybe? Something might have popped up? Maybe they're crossing the road? Right. But if I tell you that they're not actually walking on a sidewalk... um, of a busy street, but they're actually walking down a sidewalk in a park, then the reasons why they might have grabbed hands are narrowed. Because they like each other? Because they love each other? Yep. So that's the context, whether you're on a sidewalk of a busy street or you're in a park. And that gives you information that helps you assess what that signal might mean. And so... With people, we can actually, because we share a language with people, we can actually ask them, what do those signals mean? We can provide context. Right. But with other animals, we don't really have that option to sit down and have a conversation, but we can share information through a variety of signals. So for instance, with your pet dog, you might learn through observation that if they're like clawing at their bowl means that they're hungry, they're scratching at the window, that means they want to go outside. And all of these are the types of signals that Kathleen has been studying with dolphins all these years. So what are some of the ways that dolphins use signals? And, you know, what are some of the different signals? Well, one of the behaviors that I've studied for the last decade and a half is how they share contact or touch or rubs with their pectoral fin. And so where and how a contact happens on the body of another dolphin gives a different meaning. So, for example, flipper-to-flipper or peck-fin-to-peck-fin contacts is kind of like a greeting, you know, a handshake or a wave high. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like with humans. Like, if I were to like to be like, high-five, dude, and I slap their hand, that means one thing. If I'm mad at someone, I'm going to slap their face. Yep, and so it's the same with dolphins. If they're disciplining another dolphin or if they're upset with another dolphin, they might whack them with their tail 
or they might ram them and hit them with their rostrum. And so that's an aggressive signal as opposed to taking their pec fin and rubbing the side of their body. And that's more like a pat on the back. Good job, man. Exactly. And that's just the fin touching signals. Kathleen tells me that dolphins have a whole bunch of other ways of communicating with body language, gestures, postures, and snazzy sounds. They make clicks and whistles and buzzes and burst pulses. I haven't heard of burst pulses. Am I living under a rock or is that like a very unique thing to dolphins? Well, you're not living under a rock. The higher repetition clicks that are squawks or buzzes, they're called burst pulses. And those are thought to actually contain more of an emotional content and be used when dolphins are interacting with other dolphins. But how do we know that what we've built for language will be consistent throughout every animal's form of language? We don't. And when you study the behavior of another animal species, you have to try really hard not to put our own assumptions for how we communicate onto other animals. Yeah, so how do you figure out, you know, the meaning of cues objectively? Like, how are you able to figure out that this means affection instead of like, I'm about to eat you? Well, one of the things that we do is we spend hours documenting the behaviors. For every hour of data that we collect, we have about 30 hours of analysis time. And over more than 25 years, we have nearing 500 hours of video. So by having that large of a sample size where we know who initiates that behavior, who receives it, and in what context those behaviors are occurring, then we get an idea based on what the numbers are, and we can start to get an idea of what the interpretation is. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, you know, if certain things keep happening, you might be able to figure things out. Great. It's all in the numbers. Wow, that's a lot of time watching videos of dolphins. So after talking to Kathleen, it seems like the key to figuring out what animals are saying to each other is just to spend a lot, and I mean a lot of time, just observing them seeing who says what, and then watching out for what happens next. But how do you study like that when you can't see these animals? You know, when you're in the darkest places on the planet. What are the animals down there saying to each other? Well, that was my question when I first dove in a diving suit back in the 80s and saw all of this light. I wondered, what are they saying to each other? What does all of this light mean? And so a lot of my career has been spent trying to figure that out and basically talk to the animals. This is Edie Witter. Hi, Ty. Edie is the CEO and senior scientist of the Ocean Research and Conservation Association. And she's a deep sea explorer who has found a way to talk with animals in the darkest parts of the ocean. I was the first person to try to communicate with different types of imitations of the bioluminescent displays in the ocean. I discovered that if I imitated certain displays, I could get the animals to respond to them. So I felt like I was talking to them anyway. So cool, right, guys? Like, if you don't know what bioluminescence is, it's the way that certain animals emit light from their bodies. They just glow. Bioluminescence is living light. It's most familiar as fireflies, 
but there are actually quite a large number of animals on this planet that can make light, most of them in the ocean. In fact, in the open ocean environment, the majority of animals make light. Edie says that the reason they make this light is to talk to each other. She calls bioluminescence the language of light. It may actually be the most common form of communication on the planet. In order to talk to animals in their light language, Edie sets up a camera at the bottom of the ocean that she calls the Eye of the Sea, and then uses her own light system that can imitate different types of bioluminescent displays. She calls this the electronic jellyfish. And 86 seconds after it came on for the first time, we saw a squid over six feet long attack it. And it was a squid so new to science, it could not be placed in any known scientific family. So not only had I proven that I had figured out enough about how to communicate with these animals to actually draw one in, but my method of exploring unobtrusively was, as I indicated, likely to see things we've never seen before because our methods of exploring have scared so many animals away in the past. And apparently uh, it's consistent because we just did it last week, again, this time in the Gulf of Mexico, about 100 miles southeast of uh, Louisiana. Uh, We have got another sighting of a giant squid. What's the giant squid like? Uh, Well, the one off Japan was as tall as a two-story building. What? Yeah. It's like my house. And they can, they, they, they can get as tall as a four-story building. Oh, no. That's... that's mm. Four stories? That's big, guys. That's like eat my house as a snack big. That must be so terrifying. And at the same time, so exciting. Just be at the bottom of the ocean in the dark. Then you turn on your jellyfish light and bam, giant squid right off the bat. I don't know why, but I just, I kind of feel like if that would happen to me, I would get stage fright if I had to talk to something as big as that. Do you ever really feel like you, you know, communicate with them? You have a conversation, a real conversation. Yeah, the closest I've ever come to what I thought was a conversation was uh, with the eye in the sea in the Bahamas. Um, I was producing a display that was a, a series of flashes of light. And every time I did that, there was something out there that would flash back, and it would do it in a really um, interesting way. I I think it was a shrimp, and it would squirt out a string of dots, but in kind of a curly cue. And so I think the conversation I was having was a a sexy one, um, that it was attracting a mate, but I can't be sure. (laughs) Oh, oh, sorry, that's just kind (laughs) of... You can deal with it. Yeah. (laughs) But how do you know that this bioluminescence is, in fact, them trying to communicate with each other instead of being, like, just flashing just to be cool? You know, it's the new hip thing. All the kids are doing it. Because uh, that would get you killed in in the deep sea. You don't want to use your lights indiscriminately because then you're just making yourself visible to all those predators. Yeah, that's pretty logical. The deep ocean seems like a really intense place. These animals aren't just floating around, gossiping, lying on the seabed, just talking about seaweed, all that good stuff. Their communication is like, oh my god, I'm being eaten, you know? And 
it's really cool that Edie's able to actually share these signals with them. It just really feels like it's the first step to really learning their language. Do you have conversations with your uh, fishy friends? No, but I commune with them in my own way. It's it's uh, one of my favorite places to be on the planet is 3,000 feet down at the end of a dive. And we turn out all the lights and um, come up through the water column and just see this amazing light show and all of these different animals flashing their different types of lights. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a Zen state that you go into. And it, I guess that's kind of a communication um, and an appreciation of the life forms that constitute life on this planet. Do you think it's possible that we would be able to understand? Like, will we ever really be able to just fully talk to these organisms? Uh, I think in the sense that you're meaning probably not, but um, we could certainly learn a lot more about how they're using their language of light if we would focus a little bit more on exploring where they live and how they live, which is kind of important because this is the only rock in the universe that we know of that sustains life. And I think we need to be spending a little bit more time and effort trying to figure out how that's accomplished. It's so nice picturing Edie down there at the bottom of the ocean watching these wild light displays. Just seems so cool and really nice, you know, really sweet. And she's really right. We need to pay a lot more attention and more respect for these animals because... Maybe understanding them could help us talk with other things on other planets. Or at least that's what this guy thinks. We spent some time staring up at the stars and saying, are we alone? And there's these dolphins tugging at our sleeves going, hable espanol and parlez-vous francais and trying everything. So, you know, we have to make a bit of a greater effort to communicate with them. This is Lawrence Doyle. He's a principal investigator at the SETI Institute, which stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Since 1984, SETI has been looking and listening out for transmissions from civilizations on other planets. Spooky. What Lawrence is working on is a little bit different. We probably will be the first to detect any kind of alien signal. Trouble is, we have to broaden what that means. You know, what SETI has done so far is ask the question, is there a transmitter? But so far, SETI has not looked at the message. And Lawrence thinks that in order to detect and understand intelligent alien messages, we need to totally reimagine what we think by intelligence. And we can start by looking right here on Earth. What if you define intelligence as the ability to be self-sufficient based on sunshine? Well, you know, plants have it all over us. They make their own food and eat it, whereas we just eat. So, yeah, how do you tell an alien from something that's completely different here on Earth? And I think we're missing a lot. We've measured intelligence on Earth by how much they are like humans. And uh, I'm going up to Alaska this summer to record some humpback whales and... You know, when a humpback whale weighs 50 tons and it comes up next to you and breathes on you, you suddenly realize that, you know, the aliens are probably not going to want to discuss pie or the golden ratio, you know? They're going to be very different.
we're proposing by studying non-humans as well as human languages, we can come up with intelligence filters that look at the message. And then uh, we can tell if it's intelligence, in other words, if they have a complex communication system. So what exactly is this intelligence filter? Well, it turns out that in the 50s, a linguist named George Ziff, Z-I-P-F, he discovered that if he plotted the frequency of occurrence of words in English, for example, he'd take the most used words, the second most, third most, and so on, and he'd put them on a graph, and he drew a line, a straight line through them, and it had this minus one 45-degree slope. And he thought, well, that's kind of interesting. What if I do it with Chinese book? What if you did it with Russian phonemes? So he did a whole bunch of languages, and it all turned out to have a minus one slope. And it was called Ziff's Law, and it turns out that it's a necessary condition for a complex language. And in other words, if your language obeys Ziff's Law, then you've got grammatical and syntactical rules. So we were the first to plot to see if dolphins obey Ziff's Law, and bottlenose dolphins do, and so do humpback whales, and so do orcas, and squirrel monkeys do not and ground squirrels do not, and the rumble of elephants we're still working on. And it's just an amazing tool. It gives you insights. I've even applied it to a communication system between cotton plants and wasps. This cotton plant has a way of chemically communicating with a wasp, telling it what plants to land on. So it's kind of an air traffic control system, and I wrote a paper about it. I, I would definitely read that paper. Oh, I'll send it to you. Cool. So humans follow this trend because, you know, our language is pretty sophisticated. And dolphins yeah. follow it because their cliques are sophisticated. Aliens, will they follow this law too? That's a very good question. If you wish to transmit knowledge, you have to follow the rules of information theory and, in general, Ziff's law. Mm -hmm. So just generally, how does communication with animals like dolphins, whales, how does that help us find these aliens? Well, if you get an alien signal and you classify the signals right, then you can look at the message and see it obeys Ziff's law. Some people say, uh, anthropologists, that the complexity of human language is a result of the complexity of our society. So in some sense, if you can measure the complexity of an alien message, you'll be measuring the complexity of an alien society. And it doesn't mean you can directly translate yet, but it's a step in the right direction. So now we're able to understand that whales and dolphins aren't just going... <laughs> we now know that they're making intelligible communication. But then that raises the question, will we ever really understand what they're saying? You know, I hope so. There is, in principle, no reason we shouldn't progress to the point where we can have a conversation with a humpback whale. Wow, so I guess it is maybe possible that we could really have conversations with dogs or a duck. I guess we just need to be like Kathleen, spend a lot of time observing what signals are being used, and then find ways to mimic these signals, like Edie, and then use Ziff's law to figure out how complex these languages are 
So, it sounds like hard work and dedication. And I know Kian isn't like super enthusiastic about large amount of work, so I feel the need to ask. Kian, why would it interest you to speak doc? I just think it's pretty cool having a way to communicate to something. It's just like, ducks are cool because birds are cool and life is cool. for listening. I'm Ty Poole. This show is produced by Veronica Simmons and Amanda Buckowitz. Today, my guests were Edie Witter, Lawrence Doyle, Kathleen Dudzinski, and another thanks to Sonia Biting for the editorial assistance. Special thanks to Kian for telling me about his great passion of ducks. The theme music is by Johnny Spence, and another big round of applause to Johnny for helping me write and record the Animal Talk song. Next time on Tysk's Why, Deja Vu. I think Deja Vu is, is caused by like a little glitch, glitch, glitch in the memory system where you have two feelings at the same time. You have the feeling that you find something familiar and at the same time as that, you also know that that familiarity is false. Till next time, I'm Ty, keep quacking why. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.